This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Toyota, a company that wants to help you find joy by exploring America's scenic byways. I'm Ariel Tweedo, and I would say I'm a wanderer and I'm an adventurer enthusiast. I don't like planning. I like hitting the road. I just like going for it and just learning. Recently, Ariel and her good friend Shauna took a road trip in a Toyota RAV4 XSE hybrid on the legendary Blue Ridge Parkway. The route runs 469 miles through North Carolina and Virginia, and it connects two spectacular national parks, Shenandoah and Great Smoky Mountains. Exploring the Blue Ridge Parkway is so cool because it seems like it's a never-ending road of just, whoa, what is that? Oh my God, look at the river. I want to go in the river. I'm happiest when I'm outside in nature and when I'm with my friends and my family or when I see something new for the first time. Oh my God, this is super cool. I feel like I'm in another world again. Every turn on this scenic byway. Adventure brings you more excitement and stories in your life. And I think the more stories you have to share with other people, I think the more amusement and awe and joy that you'll have in your life. Whether you're rolling through the Blue Ridge Mountains and want a vehicle that delivers better gas mileage or heading off-road on a very different kind of adventure, there's a Toyota designed to get you there. Happiness to me is being with friends and family and being in nature and just exploring. Find the right Toyota to help you find joy on America's scenic byways at toyota.com. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. When we decided to create a fall series of episodes about people finding their way to happiness, we imagined we'd be telling stories of enlightening experiences in wild places. This is the Outside Podcast, after all. And as the audio arm of Outside Magazine, we are inclined to believe that most paths to happiness begin when you venture out your door. What we absolutely did not expect was to kick off the series with a piece about death. Now, allow me to explain how this happened. Back in May, Outside published a story titled The Secret to Happiness, Thinking About Death. When I first saw that headline, I was very skeptical. I mean, over the last year and a half, I feel like the specter of death has been everywhere. And that definitely did not make me happy. But then I read the story, which was an excerpt of a new book by journalist Michael Easter called The Comfort Crisis. In it, he makes the argument that despite all the conveniences and ease of modern life, we are often less happy than previous generations. And a big reason for this is that we don't think about death nearly enough. This week, outside contributor Stephanie Joyce talks with Michael about his unexpected journey to that realization. Before writing his book, Michael hadn't thought much about death at all. I, I would never think about it. I'm going to live forever. I don't have to worry <laughs> about it. I mean, uh-huh. you know, I, I think what happens is that, you know, we have this abstract construct in our mind that, yeah, okay, I'm going to die. But we never actually peel away the layers of the onion and go, well, what the hell does that mean? Thinking about death is the most uncomfortable thought you could ever have, in my experience. And it, it's hard for people to do. But 
once you do it, oddly enough, you're, you start to, it starts to strip away. I think a lot of layers of, um, protection get a little bit vulnerable, but then you also learn something about yourself that benefits you. That idea is not exactly new, but for Michael, the insight was hard won. It started with a trip to the Alaskan Arctic to hunt caribou. He was invited on the trip by Donnie Vincent, a hunter and filmmaker who Michael had previously profiled for a magazine. At first, Michael thought he would just write about the trip. He wasn't a hunter, and he wasn't particularly interested in becoming one. So I signed on. And then at a certain point, he says, are you going to hunt? And my initial reaction was no, because as a journalist, like I tell myself, I don't get involved in stories, right? I'm not the story. I'm there to, to kind of write about what you're doing. And he told me, you know, that's fine, but I think you'd really understand why we go up there and why I do what I do if you were to actually hunt. Hmm. And so part of me, I think, was also thinking like, I don't necessarily want to cross what I presume is going to be a really heavy emotional barrier. You know, it's like I can pull this journalist card and then I don't even have to think about this thing that I'm unfamiliar with that I think is probably going to be hard for me. But I trust him. I'm like, all right, you know, I th- maybe you're on to something here. So I sign on. But even at that, I knew that no one is forcing my finger to pull a trigger at the end of the day. So I kind of always have that in the back of my mind the whole time. Michael headed up to the Arctic with Donnie and another experienced hunter. The goal was to get enough meat to fill all of their freezers. The three of them got dropped off by a tiny plane on a remote section of the Noatak River with all of their gear. The Noatak is wild country, even by Alaskan standards, the kind of place where you can't help but feel very small and very aware of your own mortality. So I get dropped off, and what I'm thinking when I first get there is, well, here's day one of 30-whatever days, (laughs) and... So I, I kind of have a, there's excitement, there's some tension and anxiety because I don't know what this trip is going to be bring. And that's the thing about spending time outside is you, it's unpredictable. You don't know what the weather's going to be like. You don't know if there's grizzlies who are going to, you know, come around the next bend. Uh, mm-hmm. you don't know a lot of things. And, um, yeah. that is unnerving in a way, but it's also, there's like some adventure there. I mean, you can just kind of zone out when you're at home, but there it's like, you, you really are kind of forced into being present and focused on what's going on around you. Because if you're not, if something goes wrong, I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere and you might be where a plane can't land. Right. So yeah, that there's a much more of a feeling of like self-reliance. You are your own rescue out there. Yes. Don't be an idiot. It's kind of what was going <laughs> through my mind. Got it. And so how how long were you out there before you found yourself in a position of actually having to make a decision about whether you were going to pull the trigger, whether you were going to kill the caribou or not? It's a little under two weeks. So we had been like getting skunked time and time again. 
Like we had a couple different opportunities that just went south. And I'm thinking like, I, I might not even have to hunt. There's nowhere to hide because everything is so open and the caribou have great eyesight and they're also wicked fast. So even if you get relatively close, they'll just book it and they are out of sight. And the other thing is that we're not going to shoot from a super long range. Yeah. You know, and this is a, this is a sort of, I guess, a hunting ethics decision that, you know, having to make those decisions just kind of tells you how far we've come from, you know, what, what people came from, but we're also not going to take like a 600 yard shot. Like we're just not doing that. So the idea that we have to get in within, you know, a hundred ish yards, that, that is what makes it really sort of difficult. Yeah. Like that you, you have to get close enough that like the caribou has a chance, has a very good chance of knowing that you're there. Yeah. Yep. So for, for a couple of weeks, you're like, I guess I don't have to make a decision. Tell me about the day when you found yourself actually in a position of having to make a decision. So we'd been sitting on this hill for hours and it's a hill that sort of leads into this valley that has a river running through it. And there are deadheads, the skulls of caribou, not hippies who like uh, jam music <laughs> by the river, which suggests that caribou probably come through there. Mm-hmm. So the, we're sitting on this hill, it leads into a valley, and then it ramps up into another hill. Well, from the spotting scope, we see that there's a herd on that other hill. And so we sit there and Donnie's going, okay, so if they keep moving down this hill, they're going to sort of go down the valley. And then there's a saddle at the other end of the valley and they're going to cross that saddle. Now, if we can get to the other side of the saddle, if they start to come that way, we might be in a good position because then we'll have cover and cover is very hard to find out in the Arctic because it's flat and slightly rolling. So anyways, eventually after a couple hours, they start moving towards the direction of that saddle. So we get belly down to the ground. We sort of, we're army crawling basically across the tundra, which is all like mucky and muddy. And it's got all these gnarly plants on it, like branches and, and moss and all this. And we're just army crawling, maybe hundred yards pop up. Can't see anything. 200 yards pop up. Can't see anything. Now I'm looking through the scope of the rifle and Donnie's sort of popping up with his uh, binoculars and I'm looking at the apex of that saddle and then we see just a pair of antlers. That's the first thing you see. And then there's like two pairs, wow, three pairs and four pairs and five pairs. And they're all moving up over the saddle. And it was like, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Cause I'm thinking like, Whoa. I mean, what, first of all, you know, it's like something out of planet Earth. So you're you're floored by the beauty of it. But then also in the back of my mind, I'm going, oh, I'm the one that's hunting. All those feelings of anxiety that Michael had before the trip flooded back. The caribou were at 300 yards, then 200 yards. And as we're watching, we're kind of trying to identify, okay, where are the older ones that we thought we saw? 
we're hunting, we're wanting to hunt the oldest of in the herd because removing an older species generally is uh, better for the health of the herd than removing a younger one. And then there's this pair of antlers that has this slight hitch to it. And it's one of the older ones and it's walking with a limp. And it had been injured. We don't know how, you know, but its back leg was in bad shape and there's a ton of different ways that it could have gotten hurt. And so Donnie is like, that's the one, the one with the limp, you know? And I think when I saw that, it kind of gave me a little bit of space. I can sort of start to go, I don't know how much longer this animal has, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're at, you know, now 160, 150. And this is the closest they're gonna get is about 150 yards. And then they pass that closest point. Donnie sort of looks over at me and just goes, look, if you don't wanna take the shot, you don't have to take the shot. But if you're gonna take the shot, you need to take it now. And so I put my eye in the scope and found him. And so I took like a big breath and then released it and pulled the trigger. And then cycled another round and pulled it again. And after the second shot, the herd takes off. They act like humans, right? The first shot, we're like, what, what was that? What's going on here? You know, we're a little bit nervous. And then after the second shot, it's like, everyone run. And that's what they did, except the, except for the old caribou with a limp who went down. My initial reaction was, what have you done? Like, there is no coming back from this. No coming back from this. You've crossed this barrier. And we, we wait a minute. I don't know how long we waited. Um, my mind was kind of all over the place. Yeah. And start walking towards it. And I can see its legs are kicking a little bit but it's down on the ground and I start to sort of pick up speed, but I still have the gun. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's just, you know, it's, it's dead. It's just sort of nervous energy spilling from its body, which happens in humans as well. And we get there and the caribou is on the ground, almost like it were sleeping. Hmm. You know, it had like only the slightest bit of evidence that, it had just been killed, and that's this like very, very light uh, uh, trickle of blood coming down its white mane, just sort of dropping like drip, drip, drip. That's the only sign. I could see its herd up on the hill. I'm just thinking, man, like this animal is not going back to his herd, and this is 100% on you. I ha- I was I felt regret, but it was also a strange sense of like feeling as depressed as I've ever felt, but also as alive as I've ever felt. Like, totally weird new feeling. For a while, Michael just sat there next to the caribou, trying to take in what he had done. One of the things that occurred to him was how unusual it was to feel anything about an animal he was planning to eat. Like, Dude, you eat meat every single day at home, and never once do you feel an iota of emotion. 
what's up with that? You know, and it's kind of just like, it was more, I felt a ton of respect for that animal, the place it came from. But I also felt some regret for the fact that I'd never had to really cross that like barrier of, oh, an animal has to die if you want meat. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And like, how do you feel like that shifted your perspective about your own life, about your own mortality? I think that through hunting, at least for me, I became intimately familiar with the life cycle. Like I inserted myself in the life cycle. And so I think it's a, it sort of gave me this realization that for one thing to live on, another thing has to die. And I'm also included in that cycle. (laughs) So one day I too am going to die. And I don't know. I think that by becoming more aware of that, all of a sudden it's like kind of shakes you and you go, oh, this ride is going to end. I didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't know that with like a capital K. (laughs) We all kind of have it in the background of our mind, but it's like, you know, when they do polls of people, a lot of people over 65 even, like more than half of people over age 65, they haven't even thought about how they want to die, you know. We don't think about it, and I think by not thinking about it, we can sort of just kind of lapse into doing the next thing and not reflecting. That had been Michael before the hunt, never really thinking about death, just kind of doing the next thing. But after the hunt, not thinking about it wasn't an option anymore. He had seen death up close and personal for the first time, and that left him with a lot of new feelings to process. So he did what journalists do. He started researching. And that research led him to Bhutan, where the government actively encourages its citizens to think about death regularly. That's coming up after the break. At the top of the episode, we heard from self-described wanderer and adventure enthusiast Ariel Tuito about her road trip in a Toyota RAV4 hybrid on the legendary Blue Ridge Parkway. It just seems like every corner you turn is a different really cool overlook or a really cool waterfall or just the most lush, lush forest. Ariel and her friend Shauna were on a quest for new experiences, and they found them in a variety of places, like authentic local restaurants. I highly recommend the hot sauce. A classic general store with an impressive selection of offerings. Nails to wasabi peas, suckers. Pickled eggs. Pickled eggs. And stunning mountain bike trails. Just let's start in granny gear. So pedal until you get in the easiest gear. It was Shauna's first time on a mountain bike. Yay, Shauna! Granny gear. Granny. (laughs) I had a blast. I conquered my fears. You did so good. (laughs) So many different things make me smile, but I think... The biggest thing is just when when you have a moment with your friend. Find joy on your own journey on one of America's great scenic byways. No matter what kind of adventure you're after, there's a Toyota designed to get you there. 
Learn more at toyota.com. Thanks for coming on this adventure. Of course. I'm so happy to be here with you. Let's mow down on some collard greens and hit the open parkway road. When Michael got back from the hunt in Alaska, he found himself thinking about death constantly. And so like any curious journalist, he started researching the subject. And I learned that not everyone approaches death as we generally do in America. And that in Bhutan, death is more a fact of life. Like it's woven into the culture in a lot of different ways. It's a lot more prominent in their art, in a lot of their cultural traditions. Funerals are like a 21-day event where the dead body lives in the house and people come over and the final funeral is this big party. And then when uh, the body is burned, they mix the ashes with clay into these pyramids called sasas. And they, the, those pyramids are everywhere in the country. When I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. Like mm-hmm. every bend in the road, there will be like 50 of them in the window seals. I mean, they're everywhere. It's almost like advertisements in the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, that serves as a reminder to people that they're going to die. And part of the sort of national curriculum, if you will, is that people are instructed to think of their death at least once a day. Just think of your death. And this is largely driven by, you know, Bhutan is a Buddhist country and it seems like they lean into the idea of impermanence, which is a Buddhist concept that, you know, nothing lasts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was I was pretty surprised to learn from your book that, you know, of course, Bhutan is famously is famous for the philosophy of gross national happiness as opposed to, you know, gross national product. And I was very surprised to learn that part of that philosophy is, as you say, a prescription to think about death at least one to three times a day, that, like, it's actually something the government promotes. And I was imagining, like, I don't know, PSAs or something on television (laughs) being like, have you thought about death today? (laughs) Um, how does that prescription from the government actually manifest in Bhutan? Can you imagine that here? Like, hi, I'm Joe Biden, <laughs> and you're going to die. <laughs> this this brought to you by the National the, Ad Council. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, when I was there, I spoke to uh, a handful of different people. Some people would tell me, like, yeah, think about it once a day. One guy was like, you should think about it every time you leave your house. And another guy said. Yeah, think about it morning, afternoon, and night. So it's not like they're saying four is the exact number of times, right? It's just like, think about it every day, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously hard to measure this, but when they do their happiness measurements, they track essentially spirituality. Mm -hmm. And spirituality is an important uh, part of happiness and this idea of considering your own death is really baked into the brand of spirituality that the vast majority of Bhutanese practice. I met with a guy who's, uh, his name is Kempo Funshotashi. So he's a Kempo. Kempo is like a high up, high up in Buddhism. It's like having a PhD in Buddhism. And, And he, he wrote a book called the fine art of living and manifesting a peaceful death. 
Mm. He talked about how in the U.S., a lot of people live life like it's a checklist. And we think that by once we get the next check, well, that's that's when we're going to be happy. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I got to finish college and then I have to get a job. Then I have to get a nice car. Then I have to get married and then I'm going to buy a house and then I'm going to buy another car, a nicer car. And then, you know, so we like, we, once we check one box, we don't become necessarily satisfied. We just go, okay, now I got to check the next box and that's when I'll be happy. It's a bit of a fool's errand because, you know, we know from research that once your living standards are met, you know, having a Maserati versus a Mazda may not lead to profound shifts in your satisfaction with life. Like, yeah, it's Maserati's probably gives you some fun moments and is fun, but it's not leading to sort of these, I think, deeper satisfaction. Yeah. I mean, what were his insights into this idea that thinking about death regularly actually makes you happier. So I think, yeah. And there was another guy I talked to who touched on this as well. Basically that the idea of thinking about death is that like when people realize that this ride is going to end, it's a little bit of a shock. And then you go, well, shoot, how am I going to use this time? You start to wonder like, is this thing I've been obsessing about buying like really <laughs> the, the what I want to spend my time on? We get caught up in a lot of like little squabbles and things as we sort of try to work our way up the checklist, right? And so by realizing that you're going to die, it sort of le- leads to this shift where all of a sudden that stuff on the checklist maybe doesn't become quite as important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it puts... It puts things in perspective. Yeah. And that hopefully is going to guide your behavior in such a way that you make decisions that are, that do leave you actually more satisfied in life. Michael went to Bhutan just to talk to people about death and dying. But after a few days in the country, he had an experience that brought the whole conversation much closer to home. He went to visit the Taksang Monastery. It's this amazing monastery that uh, sort of clings to a, a cliff, essentially. And to get up there, you have to hike five miles. The altitude is high. I think it's at like 10,000 feet. And I hike up with my driver, and we tour this monastery, and it's amazing. And there's people going in and out and all this th- stuff. And um, I get out, and I'm putting my shoes on, and my driver runs up to me. And he goes, someone's sick. And he sort of takes off and goes down the trail. And then there's a set of stairs that that peel off the trail and lead up to this like meditation hut by a waterfall. And there's a group of people on those stairs. So he's headed up there. So I go up there. I just follow him up there. And um, when I get up there, there's a guy who is a Buddhist monk. And he is uh, he's down on the stairs. And... People are trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? I mean, these steps are super steep. So it's like, okay, we got to get him down. And we put him, put him on the back of this one really big driver. And I mean, he's unconscious, the guy is. And 
we move them down to a flat space, which is uh, where the trail is, which sort of just drops off into a cliff. It's relatively wide though. And um, they put him down. It's clear that he's in bad shape. Now, before going to Alaska, I had taken a wilderness survival course because I just figured like that was a smart thing to do. I didn't have to use any of it when I was in Alaska. Um, but I can see like this guy needs, he needs CPR. Like he's in a bad spot and he's, you know, he's bald. He's wearing glasses. He's in his full, uh, orange robes. And so he's a big guy too. He's probably like six foot, 200 pounds or so. And I just start giving the guy CPR. People are starting to sort of gather and, these two people kind of come in and it's a woman who's maybe like 60 and her daughter who's maybe 30 and they're both doctors. Mm -hmm. They're from Hong Kong and they have me uh, continue to do CPR because the guy is huge and both of these doctors are like 100, 105 pounds and they start a timer. We've instructed one of the drivers, call and see if you can get a helicopter because this guy is not in, in good shape. And it's like five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, 15 minutes. And, and finally, after like 20 minutes, the driver kind of just goes like a helicopter. A helicopter can't come because of the cliffs. I mean, there's nowhere for it to land or anything. And, and the guy ended up passing away right there. It was the first time Michael had seen someone die. Before going to the monastery, he had been talking to a monk who does hospice work at Bhutan's National Hospital. The monk had told Michael that he thinks about death every time he leaves his home, because years of working with dying patients had taught him that death really can come at any time. Witnessing the man die at the monastery put that counsel in a new light for Michael. I mean, I'll be on a hike and be like, I bet that guy could have done this hike pretty easy. <laughs> like, you know, it's just having that constant reminder that like, I guess, pay attention and put into practice what, you know, these guys are talking about has been, I mean, I think it's definitely been beneficial for me and helped guide some of my decisions and, how I spend my time and also what tends to get me, I get, well, more like I'm not as easy to rile. And I think that's been a, a combination of the time in Alaska experiences like that, where just, it's not so much that I'm better at picking my battles. I'm better at saying that like, there are not really that many real battles <laughs> worth, you know, <laughs> fighting type of thing. Um, just don't get as worked up over the little stuff that I think can consume people's minds. And I think that can uh, lead to some satisfaction if you, it's more like satisfaction by removal rather than addition. If people follow your advice, if, if people think more about their death and the, and the death of of others, whether those they love or you know the animals they eat or whatever, how do you think that their lives will change? 
Well, I think by practicing it, at least in my experience and people that I've talked to, is that I think it's like a real perspective shift for people where you realize, um, I think how lucky you are to be alive and how kind of kicks you out of autopilot that we can all tend to get into and sort of makes you savor the time you do have. When you realize you're going to die, you're like, man, maybe, maybe I don't need to check Instagram for the 49th <laughs> time today. Maybe I'll set it down now and go do something more meaningful. Right. Cause like you're not, you're, you're not going to remember yeah. a lot of how we spend our time. I think if you realize that that time is short, maybe you are going to do more things that you'll remember and can look back on and be like, well, that was a good ride. Totally. Um, if, if you had to, if you had to compare pre-reporting the book and now, how many times a day do you think you think about death now as opposed to before? I usually think about it every night before I go to bed. I find like that's a good time to just think about it. That was outside contributor Stephanie Joyce speaking with journalist Michael Easter. Michael's book is The Comfort Crisis. Stephanie produced this episode, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts. Original music by Louis Weeks. This episode is the first in a six-part series of stories looking at paths to happiness. The series is sponsored by Toyota, a company that wants to help you find more joy by getting you out on the adventures you dream about. Learn more at toyota.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. Learn more and join at outsideonline.com slash outside P-L-U-S. Outside Podcast listeners get 25% off an Outside Plus membership with the coupon code OUTSIDEPOD. That's OUTSIDEPOD, all lowercase.